Welcome, dear friends, uh, to our lecture on Sergei Prokofiev, uh, who is another composer pianist and whose pianistic career and whose composerly career, uh, both of them are very intertwined between uh, themselves. Uh, so we'll start, as usual, traditionally, with discussing Prokofiev, the pianist. And uh, he was a prodigy, of course, so you can see him here, not quite grown up, with a um, vocal score of Die Walküre, <laughs> of Wagner's <laughs> opera, yeah, which he was studying, obviously. And uh, he, um, he was a prodigy as a composer, but not so much as a pianist. Um, he had a very um, engaged mother who was pushing him quite a bit. And uh, what, during one of the summer stays at the estate where his father was working, she hired a composer, Reinhold Glier, to uh, work with him. And they developed a wonderful um, system of uh, summer work. Every day he would be about eight hours of work composition and studying various works and so on. But his piano playing at that time was still quite haphazard. So it was only when he got into St. Petersburg Conservatoire when he started working on his technique. And his uh, teacher, his main teacher, was Anna Yesipova. Uh, I'm always glad to show you that there are women also in Russian music, and she was an incredibly important woman. Um, she was a, a world-famous, well, European-famous virtuoso, um, a performer of Chopin, very famously. Uh, and you see Madame Annette Esipov, you know, that's actually uh, her advertising yeah, some piece of music. But her style probably wasn't quite what Prokofiev would have wanted, and uh, he wasn't quite a re good representative of her school. So this is what she said. Prokofiev has assimilated my method only to a limited extent. He's very talented, but rather crude. Uh, and uh, uh, Glazunov, the composer Glazunov, who was at the time the director of the conservatoire, uh, called him an original virtuoso of a new kind. I, I mean, I'm very struck by this idea that they already perceived that he was a virtuoso of a new kind. And this is what we're going to talk about, that he introduced not just new compositional techniques, new kinds of music, but also a new style of piano play. Yeah, and he said that he's trying to produce the effects which are often beyond the piano's abilities, often at the expense of beauty of sound. Mm. So... Uh, uh, subject. Very yes. <laughs> so um, this is just a, a wonderful story with which everything begins. It's the story of his first piano concerto. And I put it here on the slide for you. I'm not going to read it out, but uh, it roughly goes like this. Uh, Prokofiev decided to graduate from the piano faculty by playing his own piano concerto. And that was completely unprecedented. So he wasn't sure that uh, he would be allowed to do that. And they said, well, okay, you can do that if you also play the Tannhäuser fantasy yeah, by <laughs> Liszt, <laughs> which he had already played with his recital, but he had to play it again. Uh, and just to make it even more uh, ambitious and, you know, just shows you his character, he got it published just before the exam so that all the members of the committee had the score of it newly, freshly minted, yeah, and could look at all these dissonances, yeah, that they so abhorred. <laughs> so, um, yeah, and it was a complete triumph. He won a grand piano as a result of this competition. Yeah, and that, that is the recognition, I think, of the level that he achieved as a mm. pianist.
So uh, just to give you a, a, a sample of his playing, uh, this is not the first piano concerto, which he didn't record, but it's one of his early pieces, Suggestion Diabolique, which means demonic possession. fast mm. very it, well actually. yeah very yeah. well uh, and you you have this rhythm yeah mm. very mm. sort of sense of rhythm that everyone uh, yes. remarked on mm. so uh, just to show you the, the overall um, plan of his life I mapped it out for you and to show how the piano playing was connected to his composition as you can see his life is in three parts yeah we have Russia then we have 20 years in emigration and then he goes back to the USSR and spends another almost 20 years there and you can see that most of the concertos are concentrated during the, his period abroad yeah and most of the sonatas were written before and after and there is a reason for that, because he really developed uh, this new uh, idea of performing his own piano concerto as a kind of um, marketing thing. You know, he was getting triple fee if he was doing that. So, uh, and uh, because he was doing that, uh, other composers also started doing that. And that's mm -hmm. why Stravinsky, I think we talked about it last time, that's why Stravinsky also decided to write a piano concerto and travel with it. And Ravel wrote a piano concerto and didn't quite manage to play it. <laughs> but, <laughs> but nevertheless, that was the idea. That's, that's uh, why you have all these concertos there. Yeah, but the sonatas, as you can see, uh, he wrote in sort of six early works that I'm not even numbering, yeah, then without opus numbers. Some of them were then reworked into numbers one, three, and four. But number two, is new and uh, then there's only one sonata number five during the uh, period of emigration and then the most important probably yeah the three sonatas six seven eight that he wrote in his soviet period and again there is a reason uh, of why they are so ambitious and and so big and that's actually the opposite reason that's possibly because he didn't have to practice anymore because mm. the whole um, raison d'etre of his coming back to the Soviet Union, uh, he was told by the officials, you will never have to practice again. <laughs> you will never have to tour again. You will, have to, you, will, you will be able to concentrate on composition completely. And that was something that he <laughs> indeed did. Yeah, so um, just sort of to finish this story of his piano playing, the last one he performed, he uh, premiered publicly was the sixth. Yeah, and after that, it was uh, Gilles Richter yeah, and other wonderful Soviet pianists that were mm. interested in his music. Which was very much later, of course, than when he wrote the second sonata. Yes. Very much later. Even the photographs make him look a lot older. <laughs> yes. And actually, I don't think Prokofiev was the only one, but I think composers around that time, when they were very young, tended to say things that were very anti-establishment. 
and gave the impression that they, they wanted everything to be different and they were rejecting the past. Um, and I suspect that particularly Prokofiev and Bartok, those two more than any others, um, came back to the past when they were older. And I think we tend to remember them for what they said when they were young, kind of immature. You know, the t I think I remember a quote from Prokofiev, which was that uh, the time had come to do without Mozart and that Chopin was dead and buried and we should forget it. Well, of course, he didn't believe that later at all, but it's, it's when he said it that he's remembered mm. for. And I think that's a shame. But Bartok had the same experience, I think, mm -hmm. because they're both very much mellowed when they were older. And mm -hmm. it's very obvious that they, they looked to the past for huge inspiration mm -hmm. and received it. Mm -hmm. Uh, in their later music in particular. Mm -hmm. But before we get to the second sonata, which is what, what our first musical <laughs> story, uh, we're going to talk generally of how his music was received, how this early music was received. And he was called Enfant Terrible. Yeah? So this is actually a lovely painting of him by his son, Oleg, yeah? which presents him as this. <laughs> uh, yeah, somebody mm. who really wants to annoy people. And he did annoy people. And uh, I, I have a selection of quotations here. Yeah, where people say that his music hails from the fourth dimensions, mm. that uh, this is actually about the second sonata, yeah, then the Andante and the finale are wild orgies of harmonic incongruities. Yeah, that uh, his talent may be healthy. It's actually everyone was always saying that his talent is healthy, but it's been warped. Yeah, by, by uh, modernism, by the, by the clutches of modernism. Uh, some, some people felt revolted by this music. Yeah? One of the critics say these pieces left a revolting impression. They are like a hideous tumor on the body of Russian music. So that's just the strength yeah, of the opinion um, that, uh, that persisted all throughout the period before 1917. That's not, weren't all of them, but nevertheless they um, they uh, un un underlined the barbarism. Yeah, they always compared him with with a savage. There's some quite racist comments even. Yeah, that people have mm. made both in Russia and outside Russia, mm. um, trying to explain this this uh, ryth rhythmic propulsion. Yeah, uh, that they actually Bartok had as well. Mm. I was trying. Uh, the, I, I told you about this. I was trying to. Uh, find out whether Prokofiev and Bartok knew of each other, yeah, because mm. they both created this very percussive style of pianism, mm. which was mm. described as barbaric. Mm. And it seems there is not a single comment from either of them, <laughs> as if they existed in parallel universes completely. You know? So it's very difficult who was first, uh, to say who was first, yeah, to come it's up very, with that. It's hard to imagine that they wouldn't be aware of each other. Mm. But one was Hungarian, the other was Russian. Mm. Perhaps there's something there. I, and I they, they, there. they would have met in Paris, possibly, you know, but, yeah. uh, but that's, uh, that's the truth. Um, just, you know, again, before we get to the second sonata, I wanted to mention two influences, because it's obvious that, that he was influenced by Scriabin. Would, yeah. would you say that that yeah. was true? Probably in the first sonata you can yeah. hear that. Um, and he admired Scriabin a lot, but it was a very different thing, yeah, so he didn't quite follow him. Uh, and he admired Rachmaninoff as well. Um, but I think the two people that, that have something to do with it who are much less known are Rebikov, Vladimir Rebikov and Nikolai Metna. Mm. Um, so Rebikov was also this notorious modernist who was uh, kind of inventing things like this one. This is a piece which all moves in these parallel 
strange chords. And that's how it goes. So everyone thought, so there are pieces which are, for example, all in parallel fifths or all in augmented triads. And I think Prokofiev, in some of his uh, Vision Fugitive, for example, was actually influenced by, by Rebekov. Yeah. Um, and another one is Metna. What is strange about this, yeah, that it's written in 8-8, eight, eight, mm. but which is divided in 3-3 three, three and 2, which so it's a kind of rhythmic, yeah. um, in, a little bit like what he does in the Seventh Sonata, maybe, possibly. Yes, yes. And, and actually, there's a certain, um, I don't suppose it's an influence, but there's a certain suggestion of jazz there, isn't there? Mm. As well as um, Bartok doing very much the same kind of thing mm -hmm. in his microcosmos and very, many other pieces as well. Mm -hmm. Exactly the same approach to rhythm, but yeah. ignored. But, but <laughs> yeah, but so, so it's, it, he wasn't alone, yeah, in, mm. the, in that period. Um, but talking about the second sonata, um, it's a wonderful piece, uh, which was written in 1912, yeah, and that's kind of the first one which really breaks into Prokofiev's style. Uh, and uh, another critic um, said that he was a humorist, yeah, that he is a composer who was able to create music that was humorous. Mm -hmm. And we Very didn't have so. that in Scrab and we didn't quite yeah. have that in Rachmaninoff. So that is something new and that's which yeah. is, stays with Prokofiev. Well, a different personality. Very much so. But, yeah. but the fact that he admired those two other composers very much um, of course, doesn't mean that he would, he would be the same mm -hmm. in his approach at mm -hmm. all. Mm -hmm. um, this, this sonata presents me with quite an interesting dichotomy, and it always has done. Mm -hmm. Well, actually, the whole of Prokofiev's output, really, but this one, um, because it's early, it's therefore from the period in which he was thought of as being barbaric. And yet, um, it's very light, generally speaking. And I'm, I, one thing that I can tell you from my own experience of being on juries of competitions is that this sonata is played quite a lot. And it's played as if whenever the composer, and this would apply to Bartok as well, whenever the composer writes forte or anything that's relatively moderate, so many pianists see it as a green light to smash the living daylights out of the piano. Um, as, if, as if it's all, all an, ex, uh, not an excuse, but... Um, an opportunity is provided by anything above, let's say, mezzo piano, to play very loudly and, and rather unpleasantly. Um, and actually that completely loses the humour. And I've, I've mentioned it to, pl to plenty of people. We've chosen, by coincidence, the fourth movement of this remarkable sonata. There isn't a single fortissimo in the whole movement. Um, and there's only one, I think, or maybe two, further on, earlier on in the piece, in the sonata. Um, and uh, I think we're having a little trouble with our electronics. That's all right. Sorry. Go ahead. <laughs> um, I think, um, I think the, the, the interesting point there is that there is so much 
about Bartok and Prokofiev and Stravinsky and, and all that generation of composers that we miss because we took, as I referred to before, we take too much notice of what they said. And, and they, were, they appeared to be rejecting the past, which is a negative thing to do, of course. And what that, I think we can probably read into that is that the way of playing at the time was, was very much against their nature. Um, and, and so they, they were rebellious, it's as simple as that, because they were young. And later on, that all changed. Mm. The sound world, the colours that you can get from the piano, and from any other instrument for that matter. Um, but as Prokofiev was a pianist, I suppose it applies to, to the piano more than any other. Um, and, and, you know, the, the, the unbelievable uh, variety of, tonal, of, of tones you can get from the instrument. He certainly wouldn't have wanted you to get rid of them and just play percussively, or at least if he did, I'm going to defy him, I'm afraid, because the music is in immensely greater, if you, if you bear in mind. Well, I think, Peter, yeah. that at the time, he would have played it probably with a lot of force. And yes. that's probably, you know, the crudeness that Jesipa was talking about. But so why would he mark it forte only? It never mm. gets above forte. Mm. And even that is not particularly harsh. Yeah. It's just that the harmonies are, are rather acerbic. Mm -hmm. But the actual sound that he wants you to make seems to be contradicted mm -hmm. in the score by what we, we yeah. heard him say. So I, I know that I'm, I'm being a little controversial, but I, I do genuinely believe it. The music fits into the, the whole history of music much better mm -hmm. as a, a, a continuum, right, going back right to particularly Russian music of the 19th century and right through the 20th, if we think of it as part of, of, mm -hmm. um, of, of a whole and not just a rejection of something that mm -hmm. was already, already great and already in existence. I think uh, we can talk about this, the finale's humour. Do, do you want to mention it before you play or after? The, uh, well, yes, I can, I can certainly... The Beethoven connection. That the the is... Beethoven connection may be coincidental. I don't really know. Um, but I, 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 I remember that in the fourth movement of Beethoven's Eighth Symphony, which I can't play on the piano. There is a list transcription, but it's absolutely impossible. So I'm not going to expose myself to that. But... Um, during the, um, during the symphony, which is in F major, or at least in this movement, there is this recurrent D flat, which appears to be totally incongruous. Uh, but then later on in the movement, you suddenly realize that he's, that he's using it as the dominant of F sharp minor, which of course is far removed from the basic tonality of F major. Um, and I think Prokofiev copied it. I have no documentary evidence um, to support that. But in this movement, there's this long passage where a C-sharp keeps interrupting um, the proceedings. Uh, and I suspect it's the same idea. And I'll just play a little bit of that, just to demonstrate what I mean. Um... That was a very harsh C-sharp, I realise that. <laughs> but um, it keeps coming for another page and a half. Um, and it doesn't seem to have any place in it, this, this note that just comes out of nowhere every few bars. And then at the very end of the, the next page, it goes... Uh, and you suddenly realise it's actually the leading note of D minor, which it seems to me to be very much the same idea as Beethoven, mm -hmm. and I suspect that that was a nod in his direction. Um, and the other thing was the sight... These may well be rumours, or just Chinese whispers, I don't know. But I, I have heard over the years from several sources that Prokofiev got really very fed up with being dragged to the opera. 
in his home city, which was St. Petersburg, mm. I guess, mm. uh, because it was always Carmen that was being shown. Um, and he, he grew to dislike that opera intensely, uh, which is a shame, because it's a great opera. But, of course, the main thing that goes... But that, that uh, series of notes comes at least twice in this sonata, very much so, and I suspect it, it is poking fun at the opera. This is where it appears in the, in the fourth mm. movement. Etc. And it's, it's much more extended in the first movement. Mm. Um, I can't imagine it's a coincidence. <laughs> so there might be some uh, some private humor yeah that we're trying to get at here yes i think yeah. so so this is the fourth movement of the second sonata
It's a very funny piece, really. You, I'm just you smiling can, to myself. Yes, you can imagine that how they, they felt it was barbaric. Yeah, couldn't it? That's quite a, quite a lot of harmonies in there oh, that yes. were very unfamiliar. Ex at that time, extremely. And actually, I was going to mention before, in the first sonata of Prokofiev, mm -hmm. which is a short piece of only one minute long, uh, one, I'm sorry, one movement long, um, th there is nothing like that at all. It's extremely romantic and very reminiscent of Tchaikovsky. Um, and so I, I guess the first piano concerto, which came as Opus 10 and this Opus 14, would have seemed really, well, they, they would have done, it would have uh, dumbfounded the, the people at the conservatory mm. for, for sure, and all the critics and everything. It must be terrible to, to be thought of as an enfant terrible when you're a student, mustn't it? Yeah, but uh, then he goes to America. Um, yeah, so what, what happens is that after the Russian Revolution, yeah, he decides that uh, his career is not going to develop well while the civil war is going on. So he takes uh, the, the train, the Trans-Siberian uh, train, yeah, and goes via Japan and the Philippines and Los Angeles and ends up in New York. And look, uh, they meet him with the same, yeah, the terrible infant, which sounds even worse, <laughs> I suppose. Yeah, and the, the standard bearer of musical materialism. Yeah, so this music was, was heard as being kind of not idealist, yeah, not transcendent, but very much connected to things like sport or things like uh, <laughs> industry, yeah, the material things, the dynamic things, the new era. Uh, and the same thing was said about his playing. Yeah, of my playing, they said that I, it had too little gradation, but that I had steel fingers, steel wrists, steel biceps and triceps. Yeah, uh, and only um, some Russian critics, such as Karatygin, whom uh, I've um, placed here in the middle, noticed something else. Yeah, that there was lyricism, and this is what he said. And this, oh, this is always the pattern during the whole of Prokofiev's life. It's always um, like they're saying, yeah, don't don't think that he has fingers of steel. He has something else. He has lyricism, and he has. Profound, mm. profundity and one of the critics says he actually is a profound composer who doesn't want to be seen as a profound composer yeah which is what what exactly what i think what you were saying mm. yeah so this lyricism this is something gentle something sweet something tender yeah pearls of fine music musical poetry not everyone was uh, was noticing that was there any evidence that he was actually physically very strong well, he was very tall, <laughs> well, and 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 they always commented on that again. Mm. Yeah, they commented on his uh, his height and on his red hair. Yeah, and mm. they, they would make all these racist comments about Asians, yeah, Scythians, uh, or Russians, or Slavs, or whatever. Yeah, yeah, so he was kind of a representative of this this savage energy. Yeah. 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 But uh, so now that we are in, um, not, not that we are abroad in the period uh, when he was in foreign countries and was touring, uh, I wanted to show you that he was both in and out of fashion. Yeah, he was constantly uh, rivaling with, with Stravinsky. Yeah, and his music was sometimes seen as, as old fashioned. Yeah, this is a great paradox. That suddenly, yeah, he, he moves to, to Paris in, in the 1920s and he becomes old fashioned. So, here I just wanted to talk a little bit more about his style in general, because his style, once he found it, I don't think it changed that much. Yeah, he was very, very uh, true to himself, so to speak.
And this is what he says to his friend Dukielski, who also was an emigre. I'm flattered to hear that some of my works are not of their time. Perhaps this is one of the reasons why people who are too much of their time often fail to understand my language. And uh, I think that's a dig at Stravinsky. <laughs> yeah, because Stravinsky was really kind of driving the fashion at the time. So what can we say in terms of uh, Prokofiev's style and its actually traditional features? Yeah? So he was always trying to be original. That's one thing. And that was already being considered uh, old-fashioned <laughs> yeah, because Stravinsky was bringing uh, various idioms from the past and borrowing material, which Prokofiev could not quite, mm -hmm. you know, he could not abide that. He wanted to compose his own original things. The fact that he was also composing themes, yeah, that, that was also a very old-fashioned thing yeah. to do. He had a great melodic gift in Yeah, that, he, he had the melodic gift later, and, later. yeah, and he carried a notebook with him. He wrote them down, like, I don't know, mm. as if he was Beethoven, you know, somebody like that. Uh, so, and then maybe several years later, he would, he would take that notebook out and use that theme. He, he wrote melodies, yeah, but they are always Prokofievan melodies. And this is the one that I wanted to demonstrate as, a, as an example. I don't know whether you want to play just the beginning sure. of it. This um, is the beginning of the eighth sonata. Yeah. yeah. So it, it's a melody, it's the opposite of a Rachmaninoff melody, which always goes step by step. Yeah? So this is a melody that has huge intervals. It goes up in huge leaps and then comes back. And it's always has a huge range. So it's not something that is easy to sing and it's quite hard to remember. Hmm. Yeah? And it also because he, wants, he doesn't want to use the cliches. Yeah, he changes them. So it's uh, when you're trying to remember it and sing it, you get it wrong, yeah, because it's sort of slightly <laughs> off. <laughs> um, and I also think uh, another feature of Prokofiev's melodies is that they're hard to make sense without the harmony. Yeah, so yes, to I'm talk sure about right. the themes, we also have to talk about harmony. Yes. So, uh, or tonality rather, yeah. So, um, and this is another thing, that Prokofiev was and remained always a tonal composer. He was absolutely, even though some of the passages in the seventh sonata yeah, are almost mm. atonal, but there is always a center. Mm. And um, that's not all. It's not just that he is using tonality and that he is using chords, but these chords have conventional functions. He actually has cadences. Yeah, so which creates tension. So we kind of know that we are moving yeah, towards the cadence, gradually edging towards it, and then yeah, it finally arrives. And it creates this suspense just as Beethoven would do. And it's amazing to do that in the 20th century because almost nobody does that. Even those people who write tonally, yeah, he, they would mm. usually not use functional harmony. And it's, uh, his fa favorite key is C major, am I right? I think so, yes. <laughs> I think he wrote probably about 100 pieces <laughs> on C major. Yeah. And um, so this is the, the sonata number five, which moves, and you can he hear it from the tonic, via an array of keys, uh, which are mm. 
all the keys they don't expect, but it always comes back. Yeah, so you, mm. you kind of sense when it's going to come back to the dominant or to the tonic. I don't it's know whether you want to, to play well, that. Yeah, yeah, I'll certainly play that in a moment. I'd like to say that it's one of my favourite pieces of Prokofiev, number five. Almost never played because it's very enigmatic and it doesn't have any of those sort of grand virtuoso gestures mm -hmm. that one associates with 20th century piano composers. Um, and it's the only one of the, of the, the nine completed sonatas that he wrote uh, outside Russia, as Marina mentioned before. In other words, he probably, when he was in Paris, he probably felt a sense of competition with the other composers who'd settled there, which did include Stravinsky and many other very big names. Um, there is an, an element of this piece that's a little bit like Stravinsky, but I think it actually is very French. There's, a, there's a, also Poulenc, you, I think you can hear particularly in the opening of the sonata, um, and, and uh, several other influences are there. He's not quite so... Um, well, what's the right word? Um, he's not like a bull in a china shop at all mm. in this piece, put mm. it that way. There. Yeah, but you're still in C major. This is a very typical thing. Mm. Now, you mentioned Poulenc. I have to say that I think Poulenc learned something from this because he actually almost quotes it in his flute sonata, I think. You know, he, mm. he was a great, great fan of Prokofiev. Mm. Um, yeah. But uh, at the same time, if you look, this is another C major piece. This is the ninth sonata. Yeah, and you can see that it can be simplified yeah so you had many more keys that he's gone through in the fifth compared to the ninth so, yeah so he can complicate his style and he can simplify his style at will but the mm. principle of coming starting from the, the tonic and coming back to it yeah remains the mm. same and this uh, is this is uh, uh, during Prokofiev's mellowed out period when he was quite a lot, obviously later than the, the, the famous sixth, mm -hmm. seventh and eighth sonatas, the trilogy. And it's, uh, it's very beautiful, very beautiful piece, rather like the, uh, the seventh symphony, mm -hmm. which I think was written even later than this. Mm -hmm. um, and, and just both, both amongst my personal favourites. Um, I'm less uh, um, drawn to the really noisy ones, like the second concerto, for example. Mm. Although I, I know there are wonderful parts of that as well, but this is the Prokofiev that's very dear to me. Mm -hmm. um, if I can just play a little of this, if mm -hmm. we've got time. It's really, isn't it? Yeah, and, and you can say it's almost conventional harmony, yeah, but mm. there, is, but there are the little touches, yeah, mm. that tell us that it's Prokofiev. Mm. Yeah, so that, that is very typical. One so, of the things that mm. I'd like to just comment on, this mm -hmm. is slightly humorous aside, but when Prokofiev writes things that are, that are as Marina, Marina actually says, they're, um, they're tonal, but there's something a little 
acerbicum in there, when it's actually a dissonance, but it's kind of almost C major. It makes the pianist sound like they've made a mess of the piece, that they're actually <laughs> uh, played wrong notes. And the, the most obvious one to me is the end of the fourth sonata, which is one of my favourite ones, mm -hmm. but um, it actually goes like this. <laughs> It sounds like it ought to be that, doesn't it, really? <laughs> and it, I could very easily imagine a piece that does finish like that and getting too nervous and playing. Yeah. That, would, that could very easily happen with, with those two notes that yeah. shouldn't be there. And, and that, I, I would like to actually meet him and ask him what he thought he was playing at to do that. <laughs> <laughs> it's actually like a joke, a joke on the pianist. Mm -hmm. Yes, well, there, there are plenty of them. I think, you know, <laughs> yes, the, yeah. the finale of the second sonata is as well. <laughs> yeah, so uh, then the, the next thing I would like to mention is uh, the, what I call the montage principle. It's the, uh, the way he structures his works, that, you know, he puts these themes, themes together and they don't necessarily grow organically, as we say, yeah, at least, you know, in, in the youthful pieces, not so much maybe in the Soviet pieces where he mm. tries to draw more connections between them. But in principle, yeah, it goes one theme, then another theme, mm. then another theme. And he was extremely businesslike about revising his, his works and recycling the themes. And say the works that couldn't be performed, he would make something else out of it. You know, if the opera can't get staged, he would create a symphony out of it. And he would sometimes, he also used a secretary yeah, to, to write out oh, really? orchestrations for him and things. And uh, he, he said, well, um, one, on one occasion, just leave two bars there for me, I will write a transition. Yeah, so this is, <laughs> this is a very interesting way to compose, isn't it? Yeah, so to actually, he knows the transition is going to be two bars and I'm going to write it later. <laughs> yeah, so it, 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 there is something business-like about kind of arranging these things into, yeah. into this montage of, of themes. Uh, so um, now what I wanted to mention are different kind of images or different topics, as we can call them, yeah, musical topics in his music that keep uh, recurring. And one of them, I, I like calling it machine music because it was so much connected to the age of industrialization all over the world and the fear of the machine and the worship of the machine. So I wanted to play you a little bit of the very famous film Metropolis by Fritz Lang from 1927 with the original score, uh, which, where you will hear this topic. Very different repeated patterns. Yeah, so if, if you look at something like this, mm. yeah, this is the sixth sonata. I think this is very much, you know, if you ask what the sixth sonata is about. Of course, it's, it's music that is abstract, it doesn't have a program. But the topic, I think, is very much this kind of machine mm. music, yeah, and the movement, especially, I don't know whether you could play those mm. quavers there. Um. <laughs>
it is that that kind of yeah, it is. energy. And, and this is a very a very good moment to mention the um, possibly misunderstood nature of all those three sonatas, number six, seven, and mm -hmm. eight, particularly the first movement of this one, and also the third movement of number seven, which we'll hear later mm -hmm. on. Um, they were described many times as the war trilogy, mm -hmm. and I think they were also um, interpreted as a kind of anti-Soviet protest on the part of Prokofiev as well by a lot of people, uh, failing to realise that actually Stalin was extremely supportive of these works. And I think he was at, at least one of, the, one of the first performances of them, maybe more than one, I don't know. I dare say there's more to the story than that. But um, that, that <laughs> don't was... Don't steal my story. <laughs> and and the, the, <laughs> the main reason for mentioning it is that, um, particularly in the case of this movement, the first movement of number six, um, there is very definitely a feeling in my mind that it's about the industrialization of the 20th century mm -hmm. and represents, as, as you mm -hmm. were saying, Marina, about metropolis and mm -hmm. all the rest mm -hmm. of it. It's actually machines. It's nothing to do with politics mm -hmm. and it's nothing to mm -hmm. do with, with war, really. Yes, yeah, absolutely. And I think that, that changes that. the way you play it, mm -hmm. of course, very much so. Yeah, I absolutely agree. But, but there, there's also this thing, yeah, that this very famous. Hmm. Called Pugno, <laughs> yes. where which, you have to strike the piano with a fist. Which sadly doesn't work because it your doesn't. fingers are much, much stronger on the keyboard than any fist could really? ever be. Right. So you do that, it's just. Uh, yeah. You can actually hear the sound of the, the actual harmony there. And yeah, I think but I mean, if, so. if it was an orchestral piece, you would have like a huge sheet of metal being yeah. thr thrashed at that point or something like that. <laughs> yeah, a bass drum maybe. Yeah. A big bass yeah, drum. Yeah, so it's a kind of, it's a symbolic thing. And the interesting thing is that in the Soviet editions, they took that out, that remark. <laughs> I think because that was too offensive. Yeah, they didn't want to damage the Soviet mm. pianos, I think. <laughs> well, I <laughs> think I support their reproach. Uh, right, yeah. okay. O only on that. I should yeah. say. <laughs> then the other one uh, that is also very typical is what I call devilry, yeah, and what we heard already in this demonic possession or suggestion diabolique, yeah. Mm. Uh, you have to remember that Prokofiev also comes from the time of symbolism, yeah, the time of Scriabin and the time of these spiritist sounds, um, yeah, when they were trying to talk to the spirit. And he was always fascinated by this. He somehow almost believed in these evil forces sometimes. So much that he wrote a huge opera about this demonic possession, which is called The Fiery Angel. And uh, I wanted to play you just a little bit to, to give you the idea of what kind of music is written for this possession.
so this this again repeated phrases with repeated mm. notes yeah like an incantation and i find that too i don't know whether you will agree but i find that all things like that with repeated notes um that yeah. appear in piano sonatas refer to that topic yeah of of some kind of um terrible anxiety or yeah on, or possibly even demonic possession i think in the sixth sonata mm. I, I can hear this very clear clearly The, the seventh, the, the the lower one is from the beginning of the seventh sonata. Yeah. I don't know. It, it that one may be a bit less, but I think oh, they're no, all no. related. Yeah, to that. Yes. Uh, that kind of obsession. Yeah, with this, some kind of evil. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, and uh, I think, you know, this, this is, I just put this for, um, for fun because we were uh, demonstrating Scriabin's Ninth Sonata uh, a, a couple of lectures ago, and I think there is a quotation of that in the Sixth Sonata. same piece. Yes. Yeah, you just switched <laughs> from one to another. Yeah, yeah. so people yeah. might not even have noticed. Yeah, but that he actually yeah. quotes. So he quotes that evil sonata in that mm. in that context. So I think that confirms to us, yeah, again, <laughs> what what it is about. But then there are other things. Yeah, there's neoclassicism. Uh, there's of course uh, the thing with neoclassicism is, is that Stravinsky managed, managed to somehow patent it, yeah, as we discussed last time. And Prokofiev was actually the first person to do it properly in his classical symphony in 1917. Yeah, yeah. yeah so he was a little bit uh, upset by the fact that, that Stravinsky's name was always connected to neoclassicism and Prokofiev, you know, felt he, he, he was missing out and he, he didn't quite believe in the kind of thing that, Prokofiev, that, that Stravinsky was doing. Uh, but there is quite a lot of it, though. He does it in his, in his own way. Yeah? So, for example, the beginning of Sonata Number no. 4 is a kind of minuet uh, with, mm. with trills. Um, and he quite likes things like that, minuets, gavots, yeah? the, the dances yeah. like that. So that's one part of it. Mm, or the beginning of the Sonata Number no. 5 finale, it looks to me as one of Mozart's sonatas. Yeah, if you're <laughs> not wearing the correct glasses, you might... Um, it's actually, confusing. It's, it's, it's very noticeable that almost all our excerpts are gen gentle music. Mm. They're really very, you know, innocent sounding a lot of the time, and very, uh, very underpowered, mm -hmm. and very much against the image of, mm -hmm. of Prokofiev. Mm -hmm. Yes, I'll play those. Um. Dark minuet, yeah. yeah. Uh, and this, and this is the finale of the fifth. Yeah. I can't remember quite which Mozart sonata it reminds me of, but there is one line. Possibly. <laughs> 
Now, uh, this is something uh, else yeah, that comes sort of after neoclassicism, and this is what we call the new simplicity. And this, this sudden, uh, after everything, after the second concerto yeah, and the second symphony, which are all very metallic, very industrial, uh, extremely dissonant, he suddenly yeah, clarifies his style, and that actually has to do with a kind of religious conversion that he uh, mm. went through in the 20s. And it had to do with Christian science. Yeah, so the doctrine of Ma Mary Baker Eddy, you can see as she wrote this book, Science and Health, in 1875. And uh, to what extent Prokofiev really believed in all this uh, is it, very hard to say, but he used Christian science, uh, I think, in two ways. First of all, it had to do with uh, believing that your sickness is all in the head, yes, that you could actually, uh, by thinking the right things, yeah, the, the, the right positive thoughts, you could get ourselves, for example, out of a headache. And he had always headaches, yeah, which prevented him from composing in the morning. So he was working on this and really believed in kind of changing, mm. by, that by changing his attitude, he would be able to uh, uh, affect his, his state of health. So, um, from what I can remember of my visits to Russia, there are probably other reasons why you have a headache in the morning. Because <laughs> I wouldn't know about Prokofiev yes, particularly. Yeah, well, the, there, was, there, was some, <laughs> there were receptions, of course, after concerts. Mm. That's true. Uh, and uh, this is one of the quotes. Uh, As God is the unique source of creation and of reason, and man is his reflection, it is abundantly clear that the works of man will be better um, the more closely they reflect the works of the Creator. In other words, the nearer they come to Him. I must unflaggingly hold on to this thought all the time I'm working. One should not work unless one feels oneself to be sufficiently pure. So he yeah. starts looking for purity and he actually tells us that these two pieces, very enigmatic, which are called things in themselves, are connected to Christian science. Yeah, because things in themselves are these ideas that exist in the world. Yes, Christian scientists will tell you the material world doesn't actually exist. Yeah, so um, he really believed that these pieces were the beginning of something new. Um, and he also was now embarrassed about the fiery angel and all that devilry. So he really has the conflict between the, the, mm. the evil side yeah, that was fascinating him and this purity that he was trying to develop. Mm. And I don't know whether you would agree with me, but I think the Ninth Sonata, which you already uh, demonstrated, might have to do something with this idea mm. of purity and healing, because he was very sick uh, when, when he wrote it. Yeah, it was 1947, it was after his fall, he nearly died. Um, and uh, I th since then, he he'd never quite mm. recovered until 1953 when he actually died. So. That is uh, something that I cannot prove because the Prokofiev's diaries do not go into the Soviet period. We don't know whether he kept him or whether he destroyed him. So we no. have no way of accessing mm. that information. But I, it might have to do something with this idea of purity and healing. And it might be that during the Soviet times, he was also kind of practicing Christian science for mm. himself. But I, I would say that just, just speaking without having really thought about this before, but there are lots of examples of purity in his earlier music as well. Mm -hmm. We've already been through some of yeah. them. But could I play you a little excerpt from the fourth sonata? Mm -hmm. um, and if, if, if there is anything that completely contradicts the sort of stereotype of 
of Prokofiev as a pianist, this has to be the greatest example. Um, Absolutely wonderful passage, I think. Mm. And yes, again, so, very gentle. Yeah, so uh, you, you might be right. Yeah, that he always wanted to, to write themes like that. It's just at that point he decided that it was also ideologically correct to do that, <laughs> I suppose. Well, yes. Mm. And, and he turned away from his original personality, mm. which is essentially what I said at the beginning. Mm. I think that he reversed his approach uh, from that thing that he's remembered for, which is casting out mm. the past. Mm. Very much so. So, uh, when he comes back to the USSR, um, one of the things that uh, they give him yeah, as, a, as a prize for that is the ability to go into the summer retreat and compose music. And he composes his Romeo and Juliet, which is um, a kind of ballet which is very different uh, from the ballet that he composed for Diaghilev. It's, again, much brighter mm. uh, and, uh, in, in a way, possibly simpler. Uh, and uh, the, there's something more human about it. So uh, gradually he becomes more and more affected by the aesthetic of socialist realism, which privileged emotion much more than yeah, the, the kind of aesthetic of non-expression that Stravinsky mm. was trying to impose on, on him. And he sort of, I think, partially maybe went along with it in the 20s. Mm. We are now in the USSR, and we'll just talk a little bit about the, uh, the three sonatas, six, seven, eight, as a group. And you've mentioned this already, yeah, that they are not really the war sonatas. And it seems that he decided to write them uh, um, when he was planning an American trip. At the start, he was still thought that he would be allowed to go. Yeah, but the trip was for the start of 1940. And uh, maybe uh, he would he would be playing those sonatas, you know, if 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 you if you could go there. But of course, the war started, and that uh, prevented him. But he started writing these three sonatas at at the very same moment, all ten movements in at at the same time, but finished them in at different times. And it seems that, that at that time he uh, was reading Romain Roland's Life of Beethoven, which is the book which is also very dear to me. It's a Soviet edition of 1937, but that's also the book that changed my life. So I thought I'd mention that. Um, and there might be some connections. Yeah, or, or the ambition of these sonatas might have something to do mm. with Beethoven's sonatas. You know, one of them was in four movements, which is number six. Mm. And, uh, well, people ref refer to this motif from Apasyanada uh, appearing yeah, in, in number seven. So there might be references to Beethoven. 
but generally, I think it's the ambition, the scope, and also the, the connectedness, yeah, this more organic nature yeah. of these sonatas that is different from all the early music. Well, those three sonatas, of course, particularly six and seven, maybe, maybe even more particularly number seven, uh, are the, the piano works of Prokofiev that are most frequently played. Mm -hmm. <coughs> and, and he's kind of judged on the basis of these three, mm -hmm. really. Um, and they are massive, all three of them, massive in scale, and, and can very easily be explosively loud uh, in, in many ways, and usually are, um, including some of my own performances when I was young and immature, <laughs> like Prokofiev used to be. <laughs> um, but, you know, um, they are symphonic works in a way that he hadn't really done before. Mm -hmm. And as you say, they are sort of linked. There, mm. is, there are certain uh, aspects of them that you can feel go through them. So it is almost mm. like one work. Mm. And, and mm. in fact, if they're played as a single work, it's incredibly mm. satisfying. Yeah. And another thing that I would mention here, another influence, is uh, his uh, second wife, Mira. It wasn't second wife at the time. It was rather uh, a, a difficult story for him. But he fell in love uh, in 1939 with this very young woman. And he fell in love uh, during his summer holiday where he was dancing the Boston Waltz. <laughs> and he learned to dance. I mean, you can't really imagine. He probably was an incredible, incredibly awkward dancer. You can't imagine him being a good dancer somehow. But nevertheless, he, <laughs> yeah, he, he learned to dance the Boston Waltz. And I think there is a Boston Waltz mm. in, uh, in the Sixth Sonata. Um, the Eighth Sonata, even more explicitly, is connected to Mira. Uh, he says that the first theme, which he already played, came into his head when he was walking with yeah. her. And this also contains uh, quotations from two uh, works that couldn't be performed at the time. Uh, it's uh, his Eugene and Negin, his, his Queens of, Queen of Spades. Yeah, the Queen of Spades was supposed to be the film and Eugene and Negin was supposed to be a staged production. So the female heroines, Tatiana and Lisa, they end up in, in that first movement of the Eighth yeah. Sonata as well. So I think they're connected yeah, to his love and, and, and youth and this lyricism, yeah, the, the lyricism in the Eighth Sonata in particular, and the, the slow movements of mm. the Sixth and the Seventh mm. are connected, mm. is connected to Mira. Um, I will now mention, I w I'm trying to clear up this the misunderstanding about Stalin liking the Seventh Sonata. Peter, I'm sorry, <laughs> well, that's the point where we have to disagree. Oh, okay, right. okay? Well, it's just, it's just uh, general knowledge. <laughs> okay, well, well I, you know, I've written a book about it, so <laughs> I, let, me just <laughs> let me just tell you what the story was. Yeah, so the story was that uh, Prokofiev was trying to get awarded with a Stalin Prize like everyone was, but they were denying it to him year after year. For his Alexander Nevsky, they denied him, didn't give it f even for the Stalin cantata. Suddenly, in 1943, he received the Stalin Prize for this sonata. Yeah, so this is why, where I think they, this creeps in, that, that that must have something to do with Stalin liking it. Stalin may not have heard it at all. It has nothing to do with him. The committee decided that it was time to award him a prize. Yeah, there's a kind of backstage uh, deliberations that we know about. 
the prize, as you can see here, was changed from the, the, the first class to the second class, which means that he lost half the money, um, just as a result that they decided, well, maybe we, we will give the Shabalin's quartet the, the, you know, the first prize and not Prokofiev. But Prokofiev was absolutely astonished that he received the prize for this sonata and not for something else. Why would they give the prize to such a convoluted piece when it had been denied to pieces that were simpler and more transparent? And so he couldn't understand because that is one of the most eternal and, yeah, and, and harsh things and so on. And, uh, and yet, you know, you cannot, I don't think you can draw any conclusion about whether Stalin liked it or not, whether he even heard it. But the fact was that indeed it was, um, heard in a completely different way, I think, from the way he intended it. You know, because all these jazz influences, possibly, you know, influences of Western music, influences of Stravinsky, um, uh, or influence of, of Stravinsky, they didn't mention. Yeah, what what they heard in it is what what Svetoslav Richter said in his famous quotation: mm. "They were hearing the war, the tragedy of the war, and then the triumphant kind of march of Soviet troops in the finale." And this is why it's because the musicologist wrote about it in this way. He was able to get that prize. So it's kind of a mishearing, in a sense, of the Seventh Sonata. Mm. I think that, that well, yes, that's definitely, it's, mm -hmm. it's misheard for sure, yeah. and misinterpreted in performance because of it. Yeah, yeah very much so. So, uh, just to 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 close uh, his life before Peter is going to play uh, the the slow movement and the finale of the seventh sonata at the very end. But just before we get to that point, um, I would like uh, to. Uh, to mention a few things about his very last years because. After living this, this very successful life, including a successful life in the Soviet Union, uh, the, the last few years are just incredibly tragic. Um, and it all starts with this fall and this health troubles, and then there is a denunciation of him in 1948 by, by the officials when his music is not being played anymore. Very humiliating attempts to rehabilitate them, help him to write a, a kind of party cantata. Uh, incredibly sort of awful things in terms of pr professional uh, career. And then the, the, the worst possibly thing is that uh, his first wife, um, is um, arrested and taken to the labor camp. Uh, and he basically cannot do anything about it. You know, his, his children are maybe not quite grown up. You know, he can't really help them. It, it's, it's an awful situation that you just cannot imagine. So the combination of these things made, made his uh, life extremely difficult. But he was focusing on composition despite not being allowed to compose because of his condition. He was stealing little you know, napkins that he could write his <laughs> themes on when he was in hospital. Um, and uh, he was planning new works. And uh, so I wanted you to play this, this very um, poignant piece of music, which is yeah the, uh, the little fragment of the 10th sonata that yes, he planned. Yes, which he, he only completed essentially two pages of it. Um, and it just finishes in the middle, at the end of one, uh, one bar in the middle of a phrase, uh, which um, it's, very, it's very enticing because it's really great music, but it just stops. And it's, it's very, very intriguing to, to imagine what it would be like later.
that's where it stops. I always find this amazing that I, I know that it will stop, and yet every single time when that second theme comes in, I think it's mm. going to continue. Yeah, it grips you somehow. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yes, it is. Very, it's very yeah. intriguing music. Mm -hmm. Interesting that he should do this strange pro chord progression in the middle. into something in G minor, mm. <laughs> which um, that is actually a quote from one of his sonatinas from much earlier, mm -hmm. that, that strange chord pr mm -hmm. progression, which is verging on the atonal, isn't it? Um, and, and totally different in style to the rest of it. I wonder what would have happened had he finished it and revised it. There are so many examples of that, there mm -hmm. are so, uh, across the ages of composers mm -hmm. who we, we can only imagine what they would have done next. Yes, but the idea is to, to finish with something that is more uplifting. Done. I have a question. Um, well, first of all, I'd, I'd, I'd like to point out something, and then I have a question. Um, this famous um, rhythmic sequence from the final dance of Stravinsky's Rite of Spring. Um, Up, but the main one is um, which is, is, is a timpani part, of course. Um, in the seventh sonata of Prokofiev, the finale essentially is ob it's obsessively around this motif. And of course, it's several decades later than the Rite of Spring, but it very definitely a quotation. Absolutely. In my life. I, yes. I completely agree with you. I, I know that I learned it from you, but I already put it in one of my articles. So uh, I, I just wanted to remind, remind you that he played the Rite of Spring with Stravinsky, and he was probably playing the bass part. Mm -hmm. uh, and he actually was playing the bass part. We're sure about that. So that, that is definitely coming back here. So it has more to do with the Rite of Spring than with the Soviet army. Well, yeah? I, yeah, I would like to think that's true, because, you know, if it really is about the, so the Soviet army, then, of course, its relevance will gradually die away with history, which is a terrible shame. Um, I'd, I'd like to think of it much more as an abstract piece mm -hmm. with influences from Stravinsky, not something that describes a political situation. I think it's important to do that. Mm -hmm. You know, I'd rather hear, hear about the, the abstract nature of Beethoven's Eroica Symphony than hear about Napoleon and the fact that he tore up the mm -hmm. dedication page and all of that. It's more important to me that the content of the music mm -hmm. and that, that's really what I'm trying to say. My question, which I don't think anyone really knows the answer to, is why is the third movement of this sonata marked precipitato? What does that actually mean? Mm -hmm. Because, you know, interpretatively, that's, that's presented all pianists with a problem if they've thought about it. Um, does it mean that it gradually gets faster? Or is it something in the character that sort of falls over itself and it's therefore urgent mm. all the time? Mm. It's very difficult to, to know quite what mm. he means. And I know that people will always turn to, uh, to resort to thinking about what Prokofiev or any other composer said at the time about somebody's performance. Or if there's a recording that he approved of, then that must be right. I actually don't believe that as a philosophy generally. I don't think it works at all like that because all the composers I've ever known have been incredibly grateful that you're playing it at all and would, would never comment 
in any great detail on, on anything like that. So I just wonder whether our traditional performance of this piece is actually wrong not to start slowly and get gradually quicker. I've never tried it mm. and I've played it quite <laughs> a lot. I've recorded it by the way. I did record all the sonatas available as all good recording outlets as previously mentioned about Stravinsky and Scriabin and mm. others. <laughs> um, I'm sorry I just had to get that in. Uh, but that, that one, that recording doesn't get any faster either. I just play it at a, at a steady tempo I hope. So. What do we think about the, the second movement and, and the influences on that? It seems very sleazy to me. Yes, I think that is also a Western influence. Yeah, it seems like it's also has some kind of musical music hall influence. Yeah, yeah very yeah. Western. So not Soviet at all. Yeah, no, so no, no, you know the idea of this being all about mm. uh, the, the Soviet participation in the war is just feels completely wrong to me. Mm. Mm. It's very interesting, isn't it? Right. I think it's worth mentioning again, although I think we already have. This is the, the, the piano solo work of Prokofiev that is played most frequently. Um, in other words, in, in a lot of people's minds, this represents Prokofiev as a whole. And I don't believe it does really. In any case, though, if you, if you realise just how different his music can be, how unbelievably diverse, it, it changes your approach to this piece as well. And I think that's worth saying about so many examples, so many composers.
Thank you very much.